Nearly five years in the making, the time has come for the catalyst to bring agencies into the digital 21st century. Agencies have about 100 actions to transform, evolve, and standardize the citizens' online experience under new guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how the Delivering a Digital First Public Experience Guidance aims to meet the spirit and intent of the 2018 21st Century IDEA Act. We are trying to think big. Since the beginning of this administration, we have been focused on making sure that we are putting our customers first and delivering for all Americans across all abilities and really trying to drive digital as the default for how we operate the government. This is a 10-year transformation framework, and it has more than 100 actions and standards to help federal agencies design, develop, and deliver modern websites and digital services that are trustworthy, accessible, easy to use. And it's really an exciting moment for us. So there are some key components that this guidance will allow the American people to do. They should know when they're interacting with an official government website. Today, it's hard. You get search results and there's hundreds, millions of search results for one question that you ask. And this will actually help all Americans with clear clarity around if they're interacting with a government website. We will also focus on getting the best answers to top questions in language that people can understand. They will be able to access government online services no matter what their ability level is. So we will be continuing to focus on Section 508 and all of the accessibility guidelines that the team has focused on for many years, but this is really going to be catalytic in improving. And then use government websites. The public should be able to use these websites on their mobile device. We need to meet them where they currently are in a way that works for them. A key part of this is this is multi-channel. Many people will be able to access these products and services through digital technology, computers, phones, et cetera. But there are still some people that are going to want and need to talk to somebody on the phone, stop in an office, and we will make sure that this is intersectional with those multi-channel experiences. So we are really helping have access to all of this. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate that explanation. Let's take a half a step back. The guidance has been in the works for several years now. Tell us a little about the goals of the guidance. We have some immediate agency and government-wide actions, top things that uh, agencies will need to do in the first 180 days of uh, this policy guidance. I say to my team all the time, you can't manage what you can't measure. So one of the top things that we'll be doing is identifying and uh, assessing top public-facing websites and digital services and for prioritization. We will be assessing common questions and top web content to make sure we eliminate duplication and that we are optimizing government content for SEO. And we will also be inventorying public-facing services and assess top tasks so that we can figure out if they can be digitized into self-service options for the public. Whenever you create a guidance like this, there's a lot that goes into it. How'd you work with agencies, the CIO council? How'd you go through the critical steps to get this out the door? 
we have coined the term, I think, human-centered policymaking, right? We have been working really closely with our agency partners, making sure we understand that each agency, they're on their own unique journey based on their technology stack, the, the types of benefits and services that they deliver. So we have been working with the multitude of agencies. And as we have some agencies that are very forward-leaning technically, they have really competent teams, and they've been on this journey for several years, many, many years. We have other agencies that are just beginning, and we are making sure that we are doing user testing, that we are gathering data that they have uh, been working on for many years, satisfaction scores, et cetera, to really assess where we can help them start on the journey or optimize the journey that they are currently on. Claire, I was reviewing the guidance and there's several different sections to it. There's a lot of pieces and parts to this memo. Let's start with the focus on analytics. What should agencies know about it? What do they have to do? Analytics are really critical for us, making sure that we can understand how users are utilizing these different digital properties, uh, you know, where we have abandoned rates, where we have um, opportunities to really deliver a, a better, more seamless uh, experience for uh, customers. Accessibility is a very large focus for us, making sure, as I said, that Section 508 accessibility standards are followed. Brand is something that is really challenging because it is very difficult if you're going on a multi-agency journey where you might have to complete tasks in two, three, four, five different agencies. It is very difficult starting at a search engine to make sure you're landing on accurate, credible, timely government content. Also very difficult when you're moving from one website to another, there's not consistent visual design. So it's really hard to understand if you're going from one trusted government website to another trusted, verified government website. So that is something that is also part of this policy framework. Content, the public shouldn't have to decipher multiple duplicate conflicting sources of content. That's our job. And we should be writing all of our content in plain language. As I mentioned, kind of intersects with brand is design. Every agency is required to use the U.S. web design system. That's not optional. That is mandatory. We need to deliver a consistent uh, look and feel to the public, and this guidance helps us with that. As I mentioned, search, we will both be optimizing for external from SEO into government, but also really important that we have consistency in our navigation on websites and that we have good quality search functionality within an agency vertical so that you're able to search within the agency website and make sure that you get that answer quickly and importantly. And I know that you have heard me say this before, but only 2% of our forms are fully digital. And that is not acceptable. So we are also going to be focusing on this um, policy framework actually will help us move towards building out a pathway and frameworks, both on the acquisition and contracting side that will help us build the best quality digital experiences, including forms, so that they are completely end-to-end, -end, computer readable, and easy for um, the public to use. 
You mentioned the 10-year transformation framework, more than 100 actions. How are you breaking down those actions? How are you ensuring that this is not something agencies are going to get overwhelmed by? A couple of different ways. So it, it's not only 100 um, actions, it's also standards. One of the ways that we can really drive impact in government is by having standards. And that really lifts the boats across the board. Another way that we are, are really harnessing the power of this policy is marrying it with some of the work we've already been doing with the TMF. We have funding allocated for some of this work and making sure that we are developing the standards, playbooks, and best practices that will actually bring everybody along on the journey. Clara Martorana is the Federal Chief Information Officer, and she was speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can find this interview along with more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot 
in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.